Hey team, welcome back to the show. Today I'm joined by my dude Brandon DeCruz once again for part five of the female fat loss series. Man, we are getting pretty deep in here, but I'm excited for this because there's still a lot to cover. Um, before we really get into the topics, anything you want to like intro us on here or like kind of what is the thinking behind what you want to cover today, like big picture? So just a big picture overview. Uh today we're gonna really get into the uh I guess maybe more of the the uh, practical application side of fat loss. So really going through how we should go about inducing a deficit. How are we going to approach things from a nutritional aspect? Some of the nutritional principles that I utilize with clients to successfully set them up, not only for fat loss in terms of fat loss during the phase itself, but really, you know, and I always say this, and I, I've told you this many times before, I've said it on the podcast, really in my mind as a coach, I'm not really that all too concerned with what a client can do in 12 weeks, but more so what they can do in 12 months. I cement very long-term relationships with my clients. I work with them ongoing on an ongoing basis on their goals. So it's not just about getting them, you know, between for one week out of the year or getting them ready for a summer shred. You know, those are really short-term goals that don't allow these individuals to stay successfully in the process. And so really I'm very process oriented and really my mindset when it comes to fat loss is how we approach something is how it is going to set the precedence of how we're going to end things in terms of how we're going to enter a post-diet phase, which we could go into in later podcasts. But really when it comes down to it, my mindset and my approach to fat loss really focuses around body composition change. So I'm not chasing scale weight loss. I'm chasing you know fat loss with muscle retention and then also setting them up for success within the phase itself. So we're not doing any drastic cutting. We're not doing aggressive dieting. Uh, we're utilizing more of principle-based strategies as well as habits, habit change and behavior modification to set that person up for success and to be able to create better habits, better behaviors around nutrition, training, uh, movement, sleep, stress, stress management, all of these things that not only allows them to facilitate fat loss and achieve their goal from a body composition perspective, but then they have the skills to apply in life. So it's really coaching is not just coaching someone for fat loss. You know, if you ever hear someone say that they're just a fat loss coach, you know, I'd be a little bit weary about that because maybe that's their specialty, but you need to be more than that. We need to go beyond the X's and O's of just fat loss and muscle gain, or just beyond the X's and O's of calories and macros within nutrition and sets and reps within training. This is coaching is an all-encompassing guide. We are uh, essentially a Sherpa. And here's the thing. When we give that analogy of a Sherpa, a Sherpa is someone that guides you up the mountain, but they also guide you back down. So how I see that analogy play out in fat loss is I'm going to guide them up the mountain. So that's, you know, we're, we're treading uphill and it's, it's challenging. You know, you go up, up the mountain, it's the most challenging portion, but here's the thing, more people die on the way down than they do up. And so really when it comes down to it, if we look at it from a, a fat loss perspective, a lot of people, they get their fat loss goal, seven out of eight individuals. Right. So 86% of individuals that go on a diet will lose fat, will lose a significant amount of fat, but 80 to 95% of individuals that go on a diet will regain all the weight they lost in more than one third to two thirds of those individuals will regain more than they even lost in the fat loss phase itself. So what do they really need help with? They need help not only getting up the mountain, so not only losing fat, but maintaining that fat. So really our role as a coach is to educate, is to empower and to guide clients in the best, you know, the best fashion possible, you know, utilizing an evidence-based approach as well as, you know, really setting them up to not repeat the mistakes of their past, but also to take a more intelligent and strategic approach going forward. Okay. No, absolutely, man. And that's, again, I know we talked about a lot on this series. It's so much more than just uh, being a macro coach, right? Even for individuals, like I know what we're going to dig into today, where, hey, maybe my nutrition, maybe I do keep track of my macros, my calories, and I still don't have the body composition I want. Like as we're going to dig into today, there's just so much more into that. And for almost everyone, like 
that may be the most foundational principle we need to dig so much deeper. So starting off focusing on the body composition side of things, not just weight loss or fat loss. Talk us through why we want to avoid muscle loss during a diet. All right. So when we look at the overall goal, like a lot of times people get so fixated on weight loss rather than actual fat loss. But really, when I'm speaking with a client about the goal of a fat loss phase, this should be to focus on losing as much fat mass as possible while building or maintaining as much muscle as possible so that the weight you do lose comes predominantly from the loss of body fat rather than from your metabolically active muscle tissue. However, due to the fact that our society has become so fixated on weight loss rather than on fat loss and muscle maintenance, this leads many women to judge their progress by what they see on the scale, which often results in them going about dieting in a manner that is focused more so on losing as much scale weight as possible. But with that type of approach comes a, a loss of a lot of lean muscle mass. So this is a huge issue because losing a substantial amount of lean mass is something that happens frequently in dieters who focus solely on weight loss rather than on fat loss and muscle maintenance. As these individuals often take an approach where they try to drop an excessive amount of weight, you know, and especially it's like excess weight that they're unhappy with or they're uncomfortable with, and they're trying to do so in as quick of a manner as possible. So they resort to very unsustainable methods like very low calorie diets, you know, no carbohydrate diets and extreme amounts of high intensity exercise. And they basically take on the eat less exercise more mentality where they try to eat as few calories as possible and burn as many calories as possible. But this puts them in a situation where they're constantly in this catabolic state and they're losing a ton of lean mass and lowering their, both their metabolism and their total daily energy expenditure in the process, which makes them have to continue eating less and exercising more just to continue seeing weight loss, especially as they get deeper and deeper into the diet. And the issue with this type of approach is it's both unsustainable, so they can't continue doing it in the long term, so it's, it's a road to nowhere essentially, but it also causes a substantial loss in lean mass, muscle mass. And the problem with losing lean mass is it not only results in these women looking like a skinnier and a smaller version of themselves rather than a leaner, fitter, stronger version of themselves, but it affects both sides of the energy balance equation, which increases their likelihood of rapid weight regain after. So muscle is metabolically active tissue, so when you lose a lot of it during a diet, you decrease the amount of calories you burn per day, both at, at rest and during exercise. So it lowers the calories outside of the energy balance equation, but it also increases the calories inside as the loss of lean mass causes what's called hyperphagia. We covered this in depth on a body fat overshooting you know, episode that we did, but essentially that's a feeling of insatiable hunger and a drive to eat, which often results in overeating and rapid weight regain. And this heightened hunger and increased drive to eat is a natural response to having lost metabolically active tissue which is not only costly to build, like we always talk about like the building aspect, but it's also expensive to maintain, which is why we experience ravenous hunger when we've lost a substantial amount of it, as our body is trying to get us to eat more to regain that lost mass. And anyone who has done a drastic or aggressive diet or a crash diet and lost a ton of weight quickly, whether that be for a vacation or for a wedding or an event, or even a show prep will tell you that after they finished it, they couldn't help but overeat as they had like this overwhelming feeling of hunger. And I've been there. I, you know, my first show prep, I experienced like a ravenous hunger. Like I, I thought there was something wrong with me, to be honest with you. And I had lost 60 pounds over the course of around 10 to 12 weeks. And, you know, obviously I, I didn't receive great coaching on that end and I had no post-show coaching. And 60 so pounds I, in 10 to 12 weeks. Yes. I, I went oh, from shit. 250 to 190, <laughs> my man. So it was, it was a drastic decrease. However, I experienced this myself. So I, I can speak from experience, but we see this all over the literature and essentially what ends up happening is we feel so hungry. So anyone that's done a crash diet can tell you this. They lost 25 pounds in a few weeks or they, you know, they lost 20 to regain 25. And essentially you feel so overwhelmed with hunger that you continue eating more and more. And this results in these individuals and this happened to myself. So I can speak from experience 
you're regaining weight after the diet has ended at a rapid rate. And the problem with rapidly regaining weight is that fat masses regain much quicker and easier than lean masses, which often results in dieters regaining more fat after the diet has ended itself than they lost even during the diet. So they overshoot and they exceed their starting body fat percentage, which is what we see with many of the yo-yo dieters. Like many of the women that I've, you know, um, spoken with and consulted with, they have stories of having lost 20 pounds quickly only to regain 25 pounds back after it. And then they feel like this need to go right back to crash dieting to take off the additional weight they gained. And so, you know, they gained weight, they've gained fat, and then it becomes this vicious cycle of weight loss to weight regaining, where they often go back and forth between periods of over-restricting and then periods of overeating and binging, which causes them to feel like out of control and hurts not only their physical health, but also their mental their emotional health and also their body image, especially because now they're seeing themselves, you know, uh, make, you know, essentially regress and then make a little bit of progress with extreme methods and then not be able to sustain those things. So aggressive dieting strategies that result in lean mass loss are something that are far more commonly used by women as diet culture has made women feel as though they need to be a smaller version of themselves. So they're always expected to be tiny and toned instead of fit and strong. And that's really a message I want to get out there. Like I always try to empower my the women that I work with and just really let them know, like, it's great that you're gaining strength. It's great that you're gaining muscle, like embraces. This is a blessing. You know what I mean? Like let's really take an abundance mindset rather than a restriction and scarcity based mindset. And so when we really look at women who want to better their body composition and become a leaner, stronger version of themselves, they need to focus on not not on taking the common dieting and exercises approaches that they've taken in the past, as you want to avoid losing lean mass during a diet, and you also need to get out of this yo-yo dieting cycle of weight cycling. As when we actually look at research on weight cycling, this leads to what's called collateral fattening, meaning over time when someone goes through chronic cycles of rapid weight loss to rapid weight regain, it seems like they lose more lean mass and lose less fat mass during each subsequent diet, and they actually decrease their metabolism. And then when they finish the diet, they regain more fat mass and regain less lean mass than they did previously. So essentially, they end up a fatter, less muscular version of themselves, which leaves them even more predisposed to diet again. So this is a vicious cycle, as you can see. Like you're unhappy with your body image, but also you've impacted yourself metabolically. You know, you've went through some psychological strain on your body image. And so you're extremely unhappy with your body composition and you keep trying to go through extreme methods that haven't worked for you in the past. And they're actually putting you in a worse position each subsequent time that you go through them. Absolutely. And I think it's a challenging place for so many people to be because it's like, hey, where I'm at right now, I uh, like maybe I lost weight and I felt great. But again, like I took, I used a poor method to get here. So now I feel so much worse and it's like so much more painful to like, I want to get this back off ASAP and that just feeds into the cycle. And that is a challenging thing. But again, if you've been stuck in this cycle, a lot of times it does take being okay with letting go of that instant gratification, letting the, seeing the scale drop so quickly and just slowing things down a bit and at the very least changing your approach, right? With nutrition, with your training. Um, specifically the women, since this is very much focused on women, of course, the female fat loss series, are there any other benefits as far as building and maintaining muscle during a fat loss phase that they need to be aware of? hundred percent. And I think this is really important for us to hit on because really when I, I interact with women and also when I see things on social media and different things, like I find that women are so focused on losing body weight and, and rather than the importance of building muscle and maintaining muscle, especially during a dieting phase. So they're really so focused on their scale weight that they're not always as focused as a man would be on maintaining or building muscle. And focusing on building and maintaining muscle during a diet is something that would benefit every woman out there who's looking to improve their body composition and their metabolic health as building and maintaining muscle comes with a ton of benefits. So first of all, most of the women I work with come to me with the goal of getting toned, 
And in order to get toned, you need to train in a manner that builds muscle and reduces body fat, which is exactly what hypertrophy training does, which is why I emphasize the importance of progressive resistance training to build muscle rather than only doing things like high-intensity cardio or circuit training and things of that sort during a fat loss phase. And maintaining muscle during a diet, uh, dieting phase helps to keep our resting metabolic rate up as the amount of lean mass we have is the strongest correlate of how many calories you burn per day in terms of both our metabolic rate and then also our total daily energy expenditure. So just by the, the um, act of maintaining your muscle, you're going to be able to burn more calories as lean mass burns approximately three times as many calories at rest than fat does. So by focusing more on muscle retention during a diet, we not only lose more total fat mass, but we're able to diet on higher calories as we see less of a reduction in our energy expenditure. Maintaining muscle during a diet is also beneficial from an appetite regulation and hunger management perspective, which I think a lot of people overlook. And this is because when you don't prioritize muscle retention during a diet, you predispose yourself to experiencing heightened levels of hunger and dysregulated appetite signals, which can impact your ability to stick to your diet, not only during the fat loss phase itself, like yes, you're going to experience heightened hunger during that phase, but also after. So this is going to increase your chance of weight regain and fat regain if you haven't prioritized muscle retention during the deficit. And then there's two other benefits that muscle provides that are really specific and they're advantageous to women. And this is the fact that training in a manner that builds muscle improves both both bone health and then also insulin sensitivity and blood sugar control. So engaging in resistance training and building muscle are two of the most important things women can do to build and maintain bone health, which is especially important for women in the perimenopause and the postmenopause phases, as the decline in estrogen during these periods of, of life, during the time course. And, and here's the thing. We have certain things that are going to happen to all of us. We're going to live, you know, we're going to be born, we're going to pay taxes, we're going to die, and women are going to go through menopause. So we're, this is not something we can avoid, ladies. And so life, death, taxes, this, and menopause is the saying, right? <laughs> absolutely. And so within that, you know, you want to build and maintain muscle tissue. And you want to make sure that you're engaging in resistance training because when we see that decline in estrogen during these periods, it predisposes women to experiencing lowered bone mineral density and osteoporosis. And we also see that those with lower levels of muscle mass are also at a higher risk of having lower bone mineral density and suffering from osteoporosis. As having muscle and placing that muscle under tension is the stimulus needed to maintain bone density. So muscle is also the number one set of glucose disposal, which is essential both from a body composition perspective, but also from a health perspective. As 80 plus percent of our carbohydrate oxidation, so carbohydrate burning and glucose disposal occurs in our muscle tissue. So by building and maintaining muscle, it's one of the most effective ways to increase your glucose uptake, your insulin sensitivity, and manage your blood sugar levels, which allows us to be able to eat more carbs and actually benefit from doing so, which is especially important for women as they get older, as the decline in their sex hormone production leads them to be more likely to experience both insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. We actually see when women go into perimenopause and actually to that postmenopausal phase, they have as just as much of a predisposition towards type 2 diabetes as men do because now they don't they no longer have the protective effects of estrogen. And so during a fat loss phase, it's important for women to realize the many benefits that come along with building and maintaining muscle, such as the fact that it leads them to having a better body composition, higher calorie expenditure, greater appetite control, stronger bones, and increased insulin sensitivity, which is why we need to approach dieting for fat loss in a manner that preserves lean muscle mass rather than taking an aggressive approach focused purely on weight loss. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so from a nutritional perspective, like what would you say is the most important aspect that we nail in a fat loss phase? So 
But really, when it comes down to it, there are going to be many different dietary approaches that I use with clients who are going into a fat loss phase. As every single client, and you know this as a coach yourself, every client has their own individual needs and preferences. But when, when it comes to nutritional program design, one thing that I do with all of my clients, whether you're a male, you're a female, you know, any client that I work with is we're going to go into a, a fat loss phase with a high protein diet. So when it comes to carbs and fats, the approach I use will depend on the client itself. But for all clients, I'm prioritizing a high protein intake as protein is the most important macronutrient for the goal of losing body fat while maintaining muscle tissue. As protein provides us so many benefits during a diet, yet it's something I find many women under consume, which is why it's something that I'm constantly discussing with the women that I coach. So protein helps us not only maintain, but build muscle. So using a higher protein diet in conjunction with the resistance training is one way we can ensure that we at least maintain all of our lean mass during a diet, which allows the weight that we do lose to predominantly come from fat mass, which is important as when someone diets without adequate protein intake and a progressive training stimulus, we actually see that they lose up to 30 to 50% of the weight that they lose comes from the loss of lean mass, which is substantial. So think about it like this. If you were to go on a diet and you lost 20 pounds, you could lose out of that. If you don't you know, prioritize high protein and you don't progress, you know, train in a progressive uh, manner, especially in terms of resistance training, six out of 10 pounds of that could come from the loss of your metabolically active muscle tissue. And that's substantial. That's a, a great loss. 50% of you know the weight that you lose could just be coming from muscle mass and you could just be a smaller, skinnier version of yourself, essentially. Protein is also the most satiating macronutrient so that we can eat. So it helps with appetite regulation and hunger management, which can help us maintain a deficit easier. And it's been found that just transitioning someone from a lower protein to a higher protein diet can cause a substantial reduction in their calorie intake, which thus leads to fat loss. So for example, in one study, they took individuals and had them eat to fullness. So this was not a dieting study, mind you. But what they did was they increased their calorie or their protein intake from 15% to 30% of their daily calorie intake and found that it led to a reduction of over 440 calories per day during the 12-week study. So these even these individuals weren't even in a dieting or a weight loss study, but they ended up losing body fat as a result of feeling more satiated with the higher protein diet and thus created a calorie deficit without even needing to do so. So using a higher protein approach, you know, during a fat loss phase has also been shown to reduce cravings, lower hunger, and reduce mental stress during dieting. So for example, um, you know, Dr. Eric Helms had done a study years ago where he compared what many would consider an adequate protein intake. So he used that standard reference range of 1.6 grams per kilogram per day. And then he compared it against a higher protein intake of 2.8 grams per kilogram per day in resistant trained athletes and found that the group eating 2.8 grams per kilogram per day experienced greater satiation and greater diet satisfaction, as well as they reported lower levels of stress and fatigue. Protein also has the highest thermic effect of feeding of around 20 to 30%. So for every 100 calories of protein we consume, we burn 20 to 30 calories in the process of digesting and absorbing that protein. So it increases the amount of calories you burn per day more than any other macro. So these are free calories. I kind of think of it almost like a caloric funnel. It's helping you burn more. So you eat more, you burn more. And so overall, having an adequate protein intake is the most important nutritional component that we need to focus on, especially with women because they tend to underconsume it. And, and when our goal is to maximize fat loss and muscle retention, protein is vital. Absolutely. And it is crazy to see still because protein, I feel is much more popular even over the last five years. Um, but still almost every new client that starts, even a lot of coaches that we work with, they're almost always still under eating protein. So there's almost always a lot of room for improvement. So total protein, it sounds like is a very important aspect. How important or how much stock do you put in protein timing throughout the day or like how we're distributing that throughout the day? Yeah. So this is an interesting topic because I feel like 
many in the nutrition industry have become, you know, a great word to put it is a bit nihilistic over the last few years, where a lot of times they want to simplify things down so much that they make it seem like total calorie intake and total protein intake are the only things that matter. And that strategies like, say, protein distribution and nutrient timing aren't necessary. But just because something isn't necessary doesn't mean it isn't beneficial or advantageous, especially for us as coaches. Like we're looking to get the last 5% with clients. We're trying to get them over the edge, get them from intermediate to advanced and trying to pull out every tool in our toolbox, really help them advance. And so if there's a strategy like protein timing, like nutrient timing that can help them, I'm going to utilize it. So although I do agree with these individuals that yes, your total calorie and your total protein intakes are the fundamental components to a diet that everyone should initially focus on. I work, you know, I personally work with a lot of high achievers like yourself, Jeremiah, and they want the best results possible, which require a more nuanced and strategic approach. So when I have clients in a fat loss phase, I make sure that they're following a high protein diet, which checks off the box of their daily protein intake. But I also focus on having them distribute their protein intake in a manner where they're maximally stimulating muscle protein synthesis multiple times a day to provide their bodies with an anabolic stimulus to try to ca- you know counteract essentially the catabolic stimulus or the catabolism that comes along with dieting as well as the high stress lifestyle that many of them are living. So this is an important thing because unlike carbs and fats, protein metabolism actually regulated on a meal-to-meal basis, which makes protein timing and distribution more important. So there's also a cap to how much we can stimulate muscle protein synthesis in any one period of time. So once we maximize the NPS response from a meal containing like a high quality, complete protein source, like, you know, uh, a lean source of protein or dairy or whey, something like that, you know, your, your protein synthesis levels will stay elevated for a few hours before they come back down to baseline. And during that time, you know, where they're elevated, protein synthesis, you know, you cannot stimulate again. So we have to wait until it's come back down to baseline to stimulate it again. And generally, we're going to have to wait around three to four hours between protein servings to be able to stimulate muscle protein synthesis again. So this is why we want to spread out our total protein intake across, say, like three to six uh, fairly even feedings per day, rather than just take our total protein intake in just one or two boluses. Because when people make that argument, they say, oh, it's just total protein that matters. All right. So if I just take protein, one time per day, and say like this, I train in the morning, I train at 6 to 8 a.m. in the morning, but I only eat protein at 8 p.m. at night. I eat my 200 grams of total daily protein intake. Do you think that's going to be optimal? It's not. We have studies that have done that. We have a Crib and Hayes study from like 2005 that looked at nutrient timing, and they looked at look, utilizing the same macronutrient composition, same calorie intake, and they either put a protein carb meal pre and post-workout, or they separated them between morning and, and night. And so they were about five hours on either side of the training window, and they saw less lean mass gain, less strength development. And overall, they had, uh, they actually, the, the group that had utilized the nutrient timing approach pre and post workout actually recomps and increased strength while the other group saw, you know, tangible changes in, in strength, but it was, there were significant decreases, uh, significant differences between the group. So when it really comes down to it, we need to realize that with our protein intake, And protein distribution, it's not like our carbs and fats where there's, you know, in terms of metabolism and storage, because when it comes to the other macronutrients, we have glycogen stores that we can deposit and store carbs in to use for later. So we have our muscles and our liver that can store glycogen. And then when it comes to like fat storage, we have an endless amount of storage capacity within adipose tissue for dietary fat. But when it comes to protein, we don't actually have a long-term, you know, storage site to pull from when needed. So if we need to use the amino acids from protein to build and preserve muscle, we're going to need to ingest it on a regular basis and in close proximity to when these amino acids are needed, or it's tapped into muscle tissue to get it out of there. So this is why we want to evenly divide our protein intake 
up over the course of the day to get more peaks in MPS and less valleys in muscle protein breakdown. And then also we see in multiple areas of the literature that three to four evenly spaced protein boluses consumed between three to four hours apart beat out both two larger boluses spread further apart, as well as eight smaller servings taken in closer proximity to one another when it comes to increasing muscle protein synthesis rates and increasing lean mass. So we see it both in terms of mechanisms, in terms of protein synthesis and muscle uh, protein breakdown rates, but then we also see it in actual long-term studies that look at the actual application of these different protein feedings and timings of different conditions and seeing how it affects the accretion of lean mass. Okay, absolutely. So we talked a lot about protein timing, their thermic effect of protein and things of that nature. What about meal frequency as a whole? How much is that going to impact our metabolism in a phase like this? I know you used to always hear people like we need to eat six meals a day to like stoke your metabolism. Um, on the flip side, we have like a lot of people who follow intermittent fasting. So how does this impact our metabolism? You know what? It's really interesting because I feel that our industry swings from extreme to extreme. So for many years, we had those that, that you know, spouted this, um, this claim that we need to eat six small meals per day to store our metabolism. And now we have the exact opposite end of the spectrum. Here. It's like OMAD, like that's the way to lose weight or intermittent fasting or things like that. So we've really swung. But I find because I, I kind of tend to attract more resistance trained individuals. I attract women that are ambitious. They've been in fitness for a long period of time. You know, they've worked with other coaches that they're more under the former, um, you know, um, idea with right. in terms of, you know, six meals per day, they need to eat frequently and often to stoke the metabolism. So often, when I do my initial client consultations with new clients, I notice that they tend to eat a ton of times per day. And I especially notice this with the females that I work with who they don't necessarily, I don't want to say they eat a lot of meals, but they tend to have a lot of feedings throughout the day. So on average, a day of eating for them might look like three meals and then three snacks. So they're, they're getting in, you know, a good amount of feedings in total. And I think this approach stems from the fact that many believe that a high meal frequency increases metabolism which is why so many have promoted the idea that eating small frequent feedings or frequent meals stoke the metabolic burdens. But when we look at the literature on meal frequencies, effects on metabolism and diet-induced thermogenesis, also referred to as like the thermic effect of eating, we see that our TEF is most heavily influenced by our total calorie intake, macronutrient composition of our diets, not the amount of meals that we eat per day. Now, if eating more frequently did increase metabolism and energy expenditure, that would impact fat loss. So they would, these claims would be uh, correct, but we just don't see that to be the case when calories and protein are equated in studies looking at different feeding frequencies. So for example, we have research where they've compared three meals per day with 14 meals per day, and these were calorie and protein equated studies, and they found no differences in total daily energy expenditure between conditions. But what they did find was that satiety was much higher and hunger was much lower in the three meals per day condition. So, you know, we see that smaller, more frequent meals do not stimulate or enhance metabolic rate. So if we were to take two clients and put them on diets comprised of the same calories, the same macros, the same protein content, there would be no difference in diet-induced thermogenesis if I had a client consume that intake over three meals per day or six meals per day. So it doesn't matter if you eat three meals, four meals, five meals, six meals a day when it comes to metabolism and energy expenditure, which is helpful to know as, you know, a lot of times when I have people come to me, they almost feel like they have to eat like very frequently. Right. They have to eat six meals per day. They, they come from a bodybuilding background and things of that sort. And it's just not feasible for many, you know, most busy individuals. Like I'll tell you personally, when I was bodybuilding and I was competing, I ate six meals per day, but I eat four meals per day now. And it's just more feasible for my lifestyle. It's more realistic. 
And this is something I now I only really generally reserve for my male bodybuilding clients, which has such high calorie requirements that a high meal frequency is really the only way they'd be able to get down the four to 5,000 calories that they're taking in daily. But really when it comes down to the women I work with, they don't have intakes of that brand, you know, uh, you know, amount. And so this really wouldn't be an applicable approach for them. Absolutely. And I see it similarly with a lot of the women that we work with. It's very commonly like pulling it back to fewer meals, but larger feedings. And that almost always helps satiety a lot. So I'm interested to hear how do you approach, like say you're setting up a fat loss phase for a female client, like how do you approach female or how not how do you approach meal frequency? Yeah. So when it comes to deciding or determining a client's meal frequency, uh, I gonna consider several factors, and that's gonna be their current schedule, their preferences and their lifestyle, and also their individual energy budget and calorie and macro targets, which is something I think that needs to be heavily considered, especially because I coach both men and women, and often their calorie intakes are vastly different. So when I'm constructing a fat loss diet, I really try to take into account a client's total calorie intake and what the distribution of their calories and macros would be based on their actual meal frequency that we use. Because if we we use a higher meal frequency of say five to six meals per day, we need to spread our calorie budget over more feeding. So each meal will have to have less calories in it and thus be less filling. Whereas if we utilize a lower meal frequency of say three to four meals, we'll be able to have much higher calories per meal as well as induce much greater satiety. So if I have a female who needs to diet on say 1500 calories a day, and I use a standard bodybuilding approach of saying that she needs to eat six meals per day, that would mean each of her meals would contain 250 calories and each of them would most likely leave her hungry and unsatisfied and more likely to struggle with adherence. Whereas if I contrast that with a large male client that I had that's a bodybuilder who's dieting on 3,600 calories per day, having him divide that over six meals would be appropriate at each meal would contain 600 calories and it would allow us to fit an adequate bolus of protein, carbs, fats, fiber, um, as well as enough food volume to make sure that it would help with both satiety and appetite regulation. So what I try to do is I really look to strike a balance between what's optimal for a client's goal of losing body fat and maintaining muscle, what's beneficial for a hunger management perspective, and then also what's practical for that individual's schedule and their lifestyle. And I find that for many women that I coach for fat loss, using a meal frequency on the lower end of the spectrum of three to four meals per day as compared to five or six meals per day generally results in better uh, hunger management and makes it so clients have an easier time adhering to the diet. And I found this to be a more beneficial approach for women as it helps them feel fuller after each meal and less likely to overeat as lower meal frequency means they're eating more food per meal and have less opportunities to eat across the day. And it also decreases their food focus as they're not experiencing heightened levels of hunger from eating meals so small that they honestly like look like snacks. Like there's been so many times I've been on a consultation with someone and they've sent me their, their meal plan or their current dietary layout. And it's like, you know, it's like carrots and, and you know, a, a scoop of peanut butter or something. And it's like, these are little meals. Like they call it mini meals. And it's like, how do you feel after that? Are you satiated? Like they're eating like 20, you know, gram boluses. And these are women that are in perimenopause. And I'm like, listen, like you're already in an age where you're suffering from anabolic resistance. You're not even stimulating, uh, you know, not, not even maximizing muscle protein synthesis, but you're right. eating like these little, like three ounces of chicken or, you know, three ounces of turkey, things that are, you know, it's just such a small amount that it's not really realistic. So this is where I really feel that utilizing a lower meal frequency would be a better approach to help manage hunger and regulate appetite, which are some of the main issues many of us are going to encounter during a fat loss phase. So if we can get ahead of this with our approach to meal frequency and just help our clients set you know, kind of avoid the mistakes of their past because that's the thing. I've had so many women that have told me, I don't eat a lot. You know, I eat small meals. Like, yes, I eat frequently, but like I'm, I'm following like the fitness, you know, fads of, you know, 
eating small, frequent meals. Like I, I make sure that my blood sugar is managed and things that sort. And it's like, yeah, but you're over consuming calories because at night you're ravenous because you under consume right. all day and all your meals are so small that they don't induce any level of satiety. It's like you just finish your meal and you're ready for more. So it's like, it's just, you know, a vicious cycle that ends up with a lack of adherence and a lack of consistency. And that's really, I'm really trying to get, you know, edge clients towards a more consistent eating schedule, more consistent eating habits and things that are going to set them up for success, not only during the fat loss phase, but after as well. Absolutely. And I think so many people benefit from just being encouraged to eat more food earlier in the day. So many people are in that same pattern you just mentioned, whereas I undereat or I keep calories as low as I can all day. And just end up way overdoing it at night, right? And so many people like, and typically people train in the morning as well. Like from so many perspectives, it's just, it's typically so much more beneficial. Um, So we talked about kind of a meal frequency. What about meal times? Like actually having a consistent schedule with what you're eating throughout your days and weeks. Like, is there any benefit to us keeping meals around the same time or like having a consistent eating schedule? I I definitely think there is, Um, you know, just in life, I'm a big, believe in the notion that success leaves clues. And really, if you look at, you know, many of the most successful people, whether that be in fitness or you look in business, they're the most consistent and structured individuals. And one error I see many make is that they don't take the same schedule oriented approach to their training and their nutrition, and more specifically to their daily meal schedule and their timing of meals that they do their work schedules or some of the other responsibilities that they have. And so often I'll ask my clients about their schedules and they're, they're able to give me like an exact idea of their workday, what it looks like, like, what time they have lunch, what time, you know, like things like that, or, you know, essentially what time they have a meeting, what time they take a break, you know, things like that. But I'll ask them about what time their meals are taking place or how many meals are taking across the day. And it's like all over the place, especially when they first come on board with me. And I also find, have come to find that many who take a super flexible approach to their nutrition cannot tell me what they're eating in addition to when they're eating which lets me know that they're often winging it, which is one issue that may be holding them back from making the progress they want in the first place. So this is our common like macro Tetris person that are, you know, pretty much winging it meal to meal, you know, really flying by the seat of their pants, essentially. And the more you do something, the better you're going to get at it. And the more consistent you are with it, the, the better results you'll get from it, which is why I believe there's a ton of value from setting up a consistent structure in advance of your nutrition. So by simply knowing what you're going to eat, what time you're going to eat it, and how many meals you can realistically fit in the course of your daily schedule, you'll be able to be more likely to stay on track and exhaust much less mental energy, less mental resources, and experience less decision fatigue throughout the course of a busy day, which is essential because a lot of times what ends up happening is like, I always say this, no one overeats, like no one binge eats in the morning. It's never like for breakfast, you binge. It's like you've been stressed, you waited till the end of the day, you underfueled yourself all day, and then all of a sudden, or it's a weekend, and you just, you know, slip off the wagon. And really, if we could preempt that by being more strategic in terms of our, you know, calorie allocation and meal time and our consistency of schedule things, and just like you would anything else in life, if you have a meeting or you had an appointment or you had, you know, your kid's soccer game or something, you would schedule things in. You should do the same thing with your training, same thing with your nutrition. Because ultimately, if you had a solid plan and follow it, it's going to be so much easier to make progress. But without a plan, it's easy to fall back on your bad habits and regress as a result. So we really have to keep that into consideration. Absolutely. I like the analogy you set you throughout there too, as far as like, hey, what's your work schedule like? Because I think a lot of those same principles carry over, like in all these different areas, the same principles of success seem to carry over, right? I'm 100%. always trying to relate it back to that as well. Like, hey, you know how you're super successful in your career? You're also very organized there. You never just like do things at random. You know how there, like there's so many times where you don't feel like showing up, but you do it anyways. Like there's there's so many like things we can talk about. Absolutely. Um, great work. 
Um, so from a thermic effective food perspective, I think I've seen a little bit of research on this thermic effective food and like your total daily energy expenditure does like having a more consistent meal timing structure, having more consistent meal times, does that impact like the thermic effective food, uh, the total daily energy expenditure, or am I wrong with thinking that? No, that's no, you're a hundred percent on point. So what's interesting is, you know, we went over the fact that meal frequency or like our meal frequency, whether it be high or low, it doesn't independently impact either our metabolism, our thermic effective feeding, or our total daily energy expenditure. But one aspect that does is our meal timing as eating schedule, uh, you know, is a really important component. And that's actually been shown to increase thermic effective eating and totally daily energy expenditure. So sticking to a regular meal eating schedule not only helps to improve blood sugar management, but it's also been shown to increase diet-induced thermogenesis as compared to having an irregular eating schedule. And so a recent 2022 study looked at the consistency of meal times and the impact that changing this can have on the thermic effect of feeding. In this study, what they did was they had participants do a crossover trial, meaning that each participant went through two different meal schedule uh, conditions. So one condition, they put participants into a consistent meal schedule where they consumed six meals at consistent times each day over the course of a two-week period. And then they tested their thermic effective feeding response to a test meal at the end of those two weeks. Then in the second, they had a washout condition. But then in the second condition, what they did was they put them into an irregular meal schedule where they varied their meal times throughout the course of the day. And they tried to mimic like just like a Western individual that would be on like the Western diet, you know, but keep in mind, like calories and protein were equated between both conditions. So it's not like the diets were different. It was the exact same diets, but they were just divided into different meal schedules in terms of feedings as well as timings. So over the course of those two weeks, they didn't follow a consistent meal timing schedule. So on some days, they eat six meals per day, but on other days, they eat three meals. On other days, they eat four meals. So this is kind of something that I see many clients doing when they first come to me. So they'll say, you know, on, you know, during the week, I eat, you know, four meals some days, you know, when I'm really busy, it's three meals. And then on weekends, they eat more. It's not only more meals, but more calories. So it's a really inconsistent type of scheduling, especially when we look at like their weekly pattern, like Monday through Friday, as compared to the weekends. And so... In, within this study, at the end of the two-week condition, they tested their thermic effective feeding again to the same test meal that they had previously tested them. And when they compared the thermic effective feeding of the participants in the consistent meal timing condition compared to their response to the irregular meal timing pattern, they found that diet-induced thermogenesis was 27% higher when they were maintaining a consistent regular eating routine, which could equate to about a 5 to 10% increase in their total daily uh, thermic effective feeding over time if they did this consistency. So although our meal frequency doesn't impact our thermic effect feeding and our total daily energy expenditure, our nutrient timing and our consistency of one meat meals do. So this is just another lever that we could pull. It's super easy. It's like, listen, let's create a meal plan. Let's create a schedule. You know, it doesn't have to be, and here's the thing, it doesn't have to be exact on the money. It's just eating within 30 minutes to an hour of your regular timings. But if you're someone that one day you, you eat breakfast, one day you skip breakfast, you know, one day you eat your last meal at 7 p.m., one day you eat your last meal at 10 or 11 p.m. Like these are such very, these are such inconsistent, you know, t- type of timings that the body can't get a rhythm to any of them. And so you're going to see, you know, poor gl- blood glucose excursions. You're going to see more indices of insulin resistance. You're going to see, you know, obviously you're not tracking your thermic effect feeding because this requires doubly labeled water, but you're going to have a decrease in metabolism. So these are little wins that we could stack, you know, the chips on the deck and really trying to move people forward just by getting them more consistent. And being more consistent allows you to execute things on autopilot, which is such an essential component of fat loss because fat loss is challenging. It's both physically and mentally challenging. And if you could offload any of these responsibilities, any of these things that you think about, like food shouldn't be something that you're super focused on. 
rather than other than from a hunger perspective. If you are so food focused because you're worrying about how to fit fit your macros for this meal, what you're going to eat next, you know, the fact that you missed an meal, you had nothing prepared at home, and now you have to go through the drive through and can you fit this in your macros? Like that is just unnecessary stress, and I'm really a big fan of taking the unnecessary decision making out of diet. I couldn't agree more, man. People make it so much harder and so much more stressful than it needs to be. Where first, as you said, these things have so many benefits where they make your progress quicker, right? Increasing the thermic effect of food or total daily energy expenditure. But alongside that, we just have a consistent structure that we just repeat. We don't have to think about it that much. It's just so much easier to get the result you want as well. What about hydration? Um, Not the most sexy thing. I know people don't (laughs) love this as much as like any of the other variables we're talking about, but is this going to have a big impact on our fat on our success in a fat loss phase like talk us through the importance of that in a fat loss phase yeah so one reason why this is especially important is because just like you said it isn't sexy so it isn't highlighted it isn't discussed but really one thing that i find super common with the women i work with is that they don't drink enough fluids daily especially water throughout the course of their day so a lot of the women i coach are super busy working professionals their moms or their business you know, ambitious business owners. So they're always on the go. And it seems like Starbucks coffee is usually the only fluid that they, they drink most of the day. And so, first of all, this is a suboptimal way of staying hydrated, but also it's a, they neg, you know, they're negligent towards their water intake. And this is just another easy win that we can take. It's like, how many levers can we pull to really drive someone's progress forward without it being overly burdened? So without it costing a lot of money, without it being all these lab tests and these poop analysis and all these things that like, you know, our industry is moving towards where it's like, can we nail the basics? Can we really get the high priority principles in order, nail the big rocks, and then start laying on some of the minutia and some of those small pebbles to really drive your progress forward. And so hydration is important because water is an essential nutrient we need not only to survive, but to thrive. Because when you look at it, our bodies are about 60% water and our muscles are 75% water. So even if we just look at it from a cosmetic perspective, if you're dehydrated, not only are you going to have decrements in performance, but also you're not going to look as full. You're, you're not going to get as great pumps in the gym. So these are things that are, have implications all around. But hydration is not only important for health, but it's also important for our training performance and our appetite regulation. So when we look at research, it's been found that being dehydrated by just 1% to 2% can hinder our physiological function and training performance, which can have downstream uh, effects on our ability to build muscle and burn fat. So all these processes are going to be hindered from a physiological perspective just due to lack of hydration. Also, adequate hydration is important for appetite regulation during a diet, as we often mistake a lack of hydration with hunger, which is why so many people report that they feel hungriest in the morning, but that's usually due to the fact that we like when we go through the course of the night, we excrete a lot of fluid, and so we lose a substantial amount of fluid throughout the night. So if you ever check your body weight from the night to the morning, it's substantially different. There's pounds lost, and you excrete water throughout the course of the night, not only through um, you know urinating, but also through breathing. So that's something we have to replenish. So with my clients, I'm big on having them start today. And you know this personally, you know, in a hydrated state, and I always have them start their their day off with a morning hydration drink before they do anything else. As my motto is, we need to hydrate before we caffeinate. So I advise water to be the first thing that you consume upon waking rather than coffee. So listen, ladies, hear me out there. Let's hold off on the coffee. Let's not tax your adrenals, right? First thing in the morning, let's get some fluids. Let's get some, you know, electrolytes in there. And one thing I work with a lot of my female clients on is dialing in their hydration, which includes both their water intake, but not only water, as many confuse being hydrated with simply drinking water. And that's why they avoid it, to be honest with you. But hydration simply means, you know, to have adequate amount of water along with electrolytes like their sodium, potassium, and magnesium. 
But when it comes to specifically fat loss phases, another strategy I like to employ with myself and clients that both increases hydration, but also improves hunger management is to use water preloads prior to eating. So drinking water prior to a meal can help with reducing hunger and increasing feelings of fullness because it causes stomach distension. So it essentially helps to fill up your stomach, which is a form of mechanical satiety, meaning that it helps to send a signal to the brain that you're full. And that way you're able to get uh, full from eating less food at a meal, which helps with hunger management during your diet. So what I like to do is I use a two cup rule for a preload, which means that you drink down 16 ounces of water or diet drink of your choice, which essentially you could get like a Poland spring bottle or you could use, you know, a can of Diet Coke, something of that sort. And you drink that about 15 to 30 minutes prior to eating your meal. And you're going to get hydrated first and foremost. And also you're going to notice that your satiety to that meal is enhanced because we actually see in, in control trials where it could cause uh, a, essentially a spontaneous reduction at a meal between 100 and 150 calories just from employing that. So these are other little levers, little wins that we can utilize, you know, not only throughout the course of your diet, but when you go out to a restaurant and you know you're going to over, you're going to be likely to overconsume calories. Like my whole rule, and I've always told you this, Jeremiah, is I will order the first thing I do is I order a Diet Coke and I order a water with lemon. And I make sure I drink both of those big ass glasses before I order it because it leaves me you know, sometimes your eyes are bigger than your stomach. And I notice that especially when I have clients that are dieting and they go out to a restaurant, it's like they want everything, you know, yeah. they want appetizers. They want, you know, it's not enough to do something in moderation. Then they just blow their deficit for the week and they're frustrated. And they're like, man, I didn't mean to overeat, but everything just looks so good. And it's like, all right, well, what could we have done before that? So a lot of times I'll use, utilize a protein preload. I'll use a liquid preload. I'll have them have a big ass salad, you know, my mustard salad, my signature, right before they eat the meal so that we're, we're getting that mechanical satiety, and then you're less likely to overeat on those hyperpalatable foods because you have less of a drive to overeat. And again, similar to a lot of things you talked about here, none of these are overly complex or hard to do. They're both just, I think, parts of maintaining good health, but also do just make the fat loss side of things so much easier. I love it, man. I think all very actionable takeaways. Before we wrap this up, any final thoughts you want to leave the listener with? No, as always, guys, it's always a pleasure to be on with you, my man. Uh, this has been an incredible series. I know we probably have another two or three parts to go. So definitely hit us with your feedback. Ladies, I've been loving, you know, the shares, the comments, the emails that I've received about it, the DMs. It's been incredible to hear your insight as well as your feedback and support. And uh, we will be back, you know, every two weeks to provide you with this series. And I look forward to uh, to keep it going, my man. Likewise, man. And yeah, if there's any aspects of fat loss that you feel like you're still confused about, you're struggling with, feel free to shoot us a DM and we'll see if it makes sense for us to work it in the next couple parts. See how long we can take this. But as always, man, we appreciate being here. We appreciate everyone for listening and we will catch you guys soon.